tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You'll find your place there in God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to continue in our theme of prayer and studying the prayer in the believer's life. And tonight our theme will be praying through pain. The Apostle writes, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew of such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given... To me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wherever Paul ministered, the detractors and false teachers came along behind him to discredit him his teaching, and his ministry. And the very fact that he claimed to be an apostle, they called into question. Here in Corinth, they were at it again, trying to lead his converts away, undermining their influence, shaking their influence in the apostle who preached the gospel to them and had won them to the Lord. Their confidence in Paul's character, his trustworthiness, And so Paul was forced to do something he did not like to do and and never ever did in the other of his apostles. And here is the only case where we see him doing it. He sets the record straight. I was reading a while back of someone who, uh, the ministry, the minister, someone slandered him horribly in some printed form. And he went to his father in the faith and said what should I do should I answer back should I send out a retraction and and the wise old pastor said well I don't think I'd do anything about it most people didn't read it anyway the ones that did probably didn't pay any attention to it the rest of those the ones who did pay attention to it probably divided it in half and believed about half of that and he said I don't think I'd do anything about it I just let it uh Just go and you tell the Lord about it and see if he can straighten it out for you. Well, that's probably what we should do most of the time. But there does come a time when we have to set absolutely false records straight. Paul reminded them that he was their spiritual father. They would not know the gospel had he not come there by the leading of the Lord and preached the the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They were his spiritual children, and no amount of detraction or undermining could change that fact. After all, the Lord had used his ministry in Corinth to establish the church there. It's a miraculous story. Acts chapter 18 gives us the record of it, and I'll read you just a bit. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, where he had had a a miserable ministry, humanly speaking, hardly any fruit at all. When Paul entered Corinth, he was dejected and no doubt had thoughts of just quitting. If anybody would have had thoughts, Paul would have at this time. But as he came into that wicked, wicked port city, so filled with sin and idolatry and debauchery, 
he came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus lately come from Italy with his wife because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. So they were exiles and came unto them and because he was of the same craft. When these uh, craft people would come to a city, they would go to an area. There was a certain section of the cities where all the, the harness makers would get together and do their trade together. All the tapestry weavers would get together, the tent makers. And you would think that's quite the opposite of the way we do business today. Everybody would hang out their own shingle. But when these people were in exile and uh, under dire circumstances, they would join together and share their tools and uh, swap trade secrets and help one another uh, with the, the work. And so that's how Paul met Aquila and Priscilla. He abode with them, he lived with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. He was Messiah. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his garment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. And he did just that. He went next door, or very near to the synagogue, and began a ministry in a man's house. He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house was joined hard to the synagogue. It was near it or shared the same wall or was next to it. It was right there at it. And Crispus, as the Lord would have it, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in a night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak. After all, he tells us to preach the word boldly and, in, and not in fear of man, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hold not thy peace. Don't hold anything back. See, I'm in good company, aren't I? For I am with thee. Isn't that something the Lord said? You preach, you tell them all I've told you to tell them, I am with you. That is the preacher's comfort to know that when I stand here in this pulpit, the Lord is right here with me. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What a ministry it was. And the, the, the church at Corinth was one of the most amazing of the New Testament churches. We often look at and think about it negatively because there were problems. I don't know of a church where there are not problems. I don't know where there are people where there are not problems. And yes, there were abuses. There were situations in the church. But the Lord had so greatly blessed that church. And had a wonderful ministry. And there we're, we're shown church discipline in action. We're shown how it should be done. And Paul taught them, after he'd left them, how to deal with a man who was living in sin. And they, they carried that out. And the man was gloriously restored. And the church was healed and revived. And it's an amazing thing. It's a picture for all churches that are having serious problems. That if the Lord can do a work at the church at Corinth, he can do it anywhere. And I always tell preachers, read Corinthians. Read First and Second Corinthians before you quit or throw in the towel or decide to, to, to leave that place because the Lord is, is at work and he, he's at, he loves his church. If they could disqualify Paul, and still his enemies caused him mental and heart and emotional pain long after he left the place, Paul was a spiritual father. And though he established churches and went on, they never were away from his heart and mind. And he felt as if, though not literally, he was still their pastor. And they, though, questioned his apostleship and questioned his doctrine, but the Lord had clearly saved him and caused him and called him and thrust him into the ministry, into the office that he held. If they could disqualify him as an apostle, they would, ha they would have to obey his doctrine. And because if they could disqualify what he was teaching, what Paul was teaching, they would disqualify the word of God because the apostles' doctrine is the New Testament. 
He tells Corinthians in, first, in, in chapter 11, verse 5, For I suppose I was not at least a whit behind or inferior to the very chiefest of apostles. He agreed that he was unworthy. He didn't deserve to be saved, let alone to be an apostle. He was lacking in many areas, he says there in chapter 11, verse 9. He's the first to confess it. He was not worthy to be counted an apostle, but nonetheless God had saved him and called him and placed him in that authoritative office. In chapter 11, verses 22 through 33, he gives his credentials to them. And this is unlike Paul, but he feels that he must set the record straight. As if they needed to be reminded, they should have been ashamed. It is interesting to note that Paul, unlike many modern Christian workers, did not brag about or point out any of his successes. He merely pointed to their conversion. And the fact that there was a church there at all is an absolute miracle. He doesn't give facts and figures. He doesn't claim a certain amount of souls saved under his ministry. He doesn't enumerate to them the number of churches he had founded, as you and I would have been wont to do or the amount of money he'd raised and the amount of people that were on the missionary because on the mission field because of his, his ministry. Do you know what he gives as his credentials? Hardly credentials at all. Nobody would put these things on a resume. He gives the opposition he encountered. He gives the persecution that he endured. He gives the physical pain that was his daily lot in life. Paul's body was so scarred, it was like a road map. Each scar, each beating, each stoning, telling a tale about each mile of the missionary journey he was on. When Paul comes to the end of his journey, he could sing, I don't regret a mile I've traveled for the Lord. I don't regret the time that I trusted in his word. And he, on that last leg, tells them, I fought a good fight, I've kept the faith. He tells Timothy because of that. When Paul gives instruction, he's not doing it behind a mahogany desk in an air-conditioned office. He tells Timothy from his imprisonment, Son Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier. He doesn't tell him to find a comfortable pastorate somewhere and uh, float to Zion on royal beds of ease, playing golf the whole way. Fight the good fight of faith. He had gladly suffered outside the camp with Christ. Reproach, slanderings, beatings, deprivations, willingly would not take a salary from any of the churches that he founded so that no one could ever charge him for being in the ministry for money. His calloused and blistered hands were evidence of his hard work to not be burdensome to any of the churches. He, lit- he could literally testify, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He wrote to the Galatian believers what every minister must declare. For I now, do I now persuade men or God? Am I trying to impress people or am I going to do what the Lord just told me to do? Or do I seek to please men? Only a hireling tries to please his congregation. And I don't mean to be smarty or ugly one bit tonight. I think each of you know the the spirit of what I say here. I fear no one in this congregation. I've never had a leader or a person in this congregation tell me what to preach or to correct my preaching or to set the record straight. I've never been bridled or I have never feared that I had to preach or to do in a certain way to please anyone to the praise of the Lord. But even if that had been the case, you know as well as I do, I would have to please the Lord and preach his word. For I, if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. That's the mark of a true minister of the gospel. He seeks only to please the one who's called him. He gives the Corinthians several of his indisputable credentials. Do you want to know why I called myself an apostle? He tells them there in verse 1, 
It is not expedient. It is not appropriate. It is not necessary for me to glory or to brag. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, even when Paul refers to these visions and revelations, he's very, very cryptic about it. Again, unlike any modern-day person would do who had the privileges of the Apostle Paul. Most people would make a Hollywood movie, How I Went to Heaven and Came Back, and write books and sign them at Books a Billion and make money off of it. One of the requirements of an apostle was to have seen the resurrected Lord. There are three apostolic requirements. We often hear at the ministries receive letters and uh, things to announce on the radio from so-called apostles. And I always have to chuckle because I know that none of them fulfill the requirements given here in the scriptures. To be a New Testament apostle, one had to have physically seen the bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus, didn't he? And Also, he has added information here that he was taken to heaven. It was such an unbelievable experience, he doesn't even know if his body was there or if his spirit went or what it was. But he went to heaven and and saw things that he could not describe or was not allowed to tell. Unlike others who reported they've been to heaven and come back, they can tell you what they smelled, saw, ate, and did the whole time they were there, not the Apostle Paul. Secondly, to be an apostle, you had to have been personally commissioned by the Lord. And thirdly, to be an apostle, there had to be the proof by apostolic miracles, the ability to perform them, never on demand, never to impress others. And in fact, not even Paul could decide when he would use his apostolic miracle-working ability. And we know that because in the context that we're teaching, he was not able to heal himself. I've heard some people in this area of faith healing, it says if you have enough faith, you can be healed. Can you imagine saying that to the Apostle Paul? If you had enough faith, Paul, you could heal yourself. Secondly, and we could give other reasonings, when Epaphroditus came to Paul and brought him an offering from the Philippian church, he got sick and almost died. And uh, they began to wonder about him and, and, and had some things to say about it. And Paul writes them back and says, For your sake... He brought the gift on your behalf, an offering they'd made up for Paul, and said he was detained. They kind of obviously were criticizing Epaphroditus. Who does he think he is? Is he going to move in with Paul? You know, just stays and stays and stays and stays. He said he almost died. He was near unto death. Well, the question arises, if Paul had the apostolic power to heal, and that you could heal upon demand, he loved Epaphroditus as a brother in Christ, certainly if he could have done it just as he wanted to from his own emotions and heart, he would have healed Epaphroditus, wouldn't he? And so Paul did work miracles and raised dead people and uh, was bitten by a poisonous snake and didn't die. He showed in very tangible and unmistakable ways that he had apostolic power, but it was never to entertain or to tantalize or to, to, to entertain people. We see here in verses 2 through 4 his testimony. Fourteen years ago, he had this experience. No other person in history has had the experience as Paul did. What a privilege. Carried up to heaven into the throne room of, of of the triune Godhead and shown mysteries and wonders some that were unspeakable. He heard things. Can you imagine what he heard? Conversation among the Godhead. Angelic praises. Uh, conversations that were uh, top secret. The secret things belonged to the Lord. Not even the highly regarded apostle. Let me ask you, what other apostles were translated to heaven and brought back? None except the apostle Paul indescribable things, things not lawful to repeat. He saw the Lamb slain and glorified at the right hand of God on high. He heard the angels in their repeated phrases 
incessantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And then we see there in verse 5, of such an one will I glory. Not himself, but of this one he saw in all of his splendor upon the throne. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. Glory in infirmities? Paul, are you crazy? Who does such a thing? Most people would have bragged about their experience, wouldn't they? Their unequaled privilege from the Lord. But Paul refused to do so. So that others would not think too highly of him. He did not want to undue attention or adulation drawn to himself. Be careful when you desire the praise of others. His expounding the doctrines that God had extended to him and entrusted to him and his preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ was far more important to Paul than regaling people with his trip to heaven and back. Do you want to know what Paul gloried in? He tells us, of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. When you've been to heaven and back, When you saw the streets of gold and the gates of pearl, when you saw the angelic hosts and the Son of God, you glory in infirmities. He brags on God's amazing grace. Here Paul tells us the secret, if you will, of his success. Few learn it as Paul gives it here. His success in handling so much privilege. Most people can't handle privilege. Success and prosperity ruins most people. Be thankful that the Lord keeps you where you are. And when you are entrusted with more, that uh, status, that promotion, that uh, more than what you need, you better be careful. It is a test. And most people don't pass it. Most people couldn't handle such an honor as Paul had, an all-expense-paid trip to paradise. Neither could Paul. He absolutely could not handle it, and so the Lord made sure that Paul would be able to. God gives Paul not only a trip to paradise, but he gives him a souvenir, a gift, a thorn in the flesh. Paul focuses on the gift of God's infirmity. Now, we talk about blessings, but we never, ever consider infirmity a blessing. We talk about blessings as a promotion or uh, some other boon, some other good thing, good feeling, good predicament, a good place, favor, uh, things, possessions, health. And while many of those things are and all those things are gifts from the Lord and should be received and enjoyed. There are other blessings. Some of God's gifts, the Bible tells us, are wrapped in, they're called treasures of darkness. They're packages wrapped in dark coverings. Did you know that Paul focuses on the, the infirmity instead of the, the glory of what he saw in heaven? Did you know that the, that the sin of Pride is a major or the major besetting sin of all times. And none of us are exempt. This is not just a sin of an apostle or a preacher or a rich person or someone in authority. It is the sin of all of us. Paul was no different. He battled pride just like we all do. The cause of pride comes from our sinful nature. When we fix our attention on something or some privilege, some ability, our looks, our intelligence, our status, our position, whatever we focus our attention on unduly, it becomes a perverted thing. Perversion is something used in a way that God did not intend for it to be used. And anything can be perverted, changed from its original purpose and intent. A.W. Pink says the pride of life can feed on anything and turn temporal mercies and even spiritual gifts and graces into poison. 
Pride was the main ingredient in the sin of our first parents. They aspired to be as God. There is pride in every sin since it is the lifting up of the creature against the Creator. God hates pride. In that famous list in Proverbs, these six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. And there the Scripture says, the proud look, the haughty demeanor. Grace's aim is to demolish our pride. And God will do anything it takes in a believer's life to dismantle and crush our pride. The old gospel song says, Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. If you ever forget that, you're headed for a fall. Paul's privilege of being transported to heaven and being shown the secrets of God did not itself cause the pride. It wasn't the privilege that caused the pride. His sinful nature would naturally take such a privilege and lift himself up and abuse such an honor. I must be pretty good for God to favor me in this way. After all, who else has been able to do that? We reason it's because of our goodness or our favor, the reason that God has done what he has in our life. But I will tell you, it's for his own sovereign purpose. It's his own good pleasure that he does anything at all with us at all, or nothing at all with us. And so Paul could have erroneously reasoned, I must be the greatest of the apostles instead of the least of the apostles because Peter didn't go to heaven and come back and John hadn't. In fact, none of them have. And he could have told the Corinthians, who among you have been to heaven and back? And he could have said, I'll prove it. I'll show, tell you some things you don't know about. That's what we would have been tempted to do. We would have defended ourselves from our privileges and from what God had shown us. Not Paul. He points to his scars. He points to his imprisonments. He points to the thorn in his flesh. He would have become spiritually proud and conceited and beyond being uh, approached by others and treating himself as one of Christ's uh, uh, favorites, apostles, a celebrity. There are no celebrity Christians. And to treat folks as such is an absolute horrendous thing. To stop all of that, our God is so wise, isn't he? He's a father unlike earthly fathers. Earthly fathers are tempted to, even the most well-meaning among us, we're tempted to spoil our children. But the Heavenly Father never does that. Oh, he's gracious beyond measure, kind and loving, and supplying all that we need. But he never spoils us. He never panders to us. To stop all that from happening, to stop Paul from being absolutely ruined, and from taking that pride taking root in his life, and ruining him as a servant of Christ. By the way, do you remember Paul's greatest fear? What was his greatest fear? I pray that when I preach to others, that I become disapproved, set, up, set on the shelf, set aside, because I'm not fit to be used by the Lord. That was his greatest fear. Well, the Lord knew that. That was a prayer that Paul had. And when we pray to the Lord, keep me right, Lord, don't let me wander astray, we sing it, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone, I'm inclined to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take it and seal it. That sealing may have in it a thorn to keep us where we ought to be. To stop all that from taking root in Paul's life and ruining him, God allowed a thorn in his physical body. Now, in time immemorial for the last 2,000 years, Bible teachers have surmised what Paul's thorn was. But we know it was physical, whatever it was, because he tells us that, doesn't he? In my flesh. So painful. So noticeable. Ever-present and overwhelming so as to kill his pride. Whatever it was, and we're thankful that the Holy Spirit does not let Paul record it. The Corinthians knew what it was. They saw him. Tradition tells us that Paul was a small 
slight man, very unbecoming in appearance, hunched, and if the stonings and all probably didn't help that, the horrible circumstances, sleeping out in the cold and, and not having all that he needed was uh, no doubt horrendous on the bone structure in his body. Some say that he had the oriental eye disease, ophthalmia, because he tells the Galatians at the end of that letter, you see what large letters I write to you. He usually dictated his letters to an amanuensis, a secretary. But as a mark of insurance and credentials, he takes the quill in hand to the Galatian believers, and he says, you see what large letter, in the Greek it means letters that I write to you at some point, that he had trouble seeing. We know that at least one occasion he didn't recognize the high priest. Do you remember when the high priest was uh, sitting in judgment and, and Paul was talking and the high priest told the, the guard next to Paul to slap him in the face? And that the guard did. Do you remember Paul's response? God will smite you, you whited sepulcher. Someone whispered to Paul, do you not know who you're talking to? You're talking to the high priest. And what was Paul's response? I did not know that that was the high priest. He didn't know it was the high priest with all that garb that he had on. He had to have eye trouble. He didn't see that. I mean, it was as unmistakable as, as anything. So we could go on and on. But whatever it was, it was a physical infirmity that was a constant pain and embarrassment to Paul. It was painful. It stayed with him. Not even his privilege as an apostle and with apostolic power could heal him. Not even his favor with the Lord as one being taken to heaven and, and entrusted with the mysteries of God was able to live life without this thorn. But Satan, who's always studying us, always at work, the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, danced with glee when God gave Paul this thorn and said, Aha, I'll shut him up. I will use this. Satan seized on it and used it to his advantage to aggravate Paul. The Holy Spirit is silent as to what the thorn was, but and the reason I think of that is so that we can all relate to it. Whatever your situation is today, you have a thorn and you've asked the Lord to remove it, and God has not. We too may have a thorn like Paul's. It, it will be given or allowed by the Lord for the same reason, to perfect us. God is absolutely consumed with perfecting us. Is he not going to glorify us one day? We're not glorified yet. We've been saved. We've been justified. We are being sanctified and one day we'll be glorified. He's given us the Holy Spirit as earnest, the down payment until the purchased possession. But he's working every day to conform us to the image of his son. And the last time I looked down deep into Chris Lamb's heart and life, I saw a whole lot there that didn't look like the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul sees this thorn allowed by God as a favor, a blessing just as much or more so than the privilege of being transported to heaven. Notice he uses the word, their gift. It was given to me. He uses that, that word, as we usually refer to as a good thing, to describe this thorn. For, for something to be given, it has to be received. The Lord gave it. And it's not that Paul didn't struggle with it. Aren't you glad that Paul tells us that he prayed about it. Elsewhere, he says, I have had to learn in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul had to receive it. Some people never receive the things that God gives them. They don't see them as blessings. They see them as burdens. They see them as curses or as punishment. And so instead of it becoming a blessing, it becomes bitterness. And bitterness is, bitterness is cancer of the soul. And it will eat away at your joy and your peace and all those graces that the Holy Spirit is endeavoring to establish in your life. Paul regarded it as from the Lord. 
while he also called it at the same time. It was given from the Lord, but it was also, what does he say? A messenger from Satan. Why? Satan used it to buffet him. God meant it to keep him holy and sanctified and sweet and grounded and where he could use him. My daddy used to say of some people, that man's too big for his own britches. And what he meant by that, he couldn't be used. He, he, was, he thought he was more highly of himself than he ought to think. God wanted to use Paul, but he can't use us when we think we're bigger than, than what we are. I remember reading where a young preacher came to, to the Spurgeon and said, I, I don't, Spurgeon's large church, and the young man was complaining about the small church that he pastored. And Spurgeon asked, how many members do you have on the roll? He said, I have a hundred. And Spurgeon reminds him, that would be quite enough to give an account of in the day of judgment. There's nothing small in a believer's life when it's from the Lord. There's nothing insignificant. Don't use the world's standards to qualify or quantify or call something a success or a failure. God has to whittle things down before he can use most of them. He has to break them and remake most of us, all of us, before he can use us for his honor and glory. Don't listen to Satan's lies, but Satan seized upon the opportunity to, to buffet me. You know what the word buffet there literally means? To harass me. Satan used this gift from God that God meant to be what I needed. There's a verse in the Psalms that talks about binding the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. We know Satan is allowed by God at times to cause bodily affliction. I'll give you just three illustrations. You know that Job's bulls, his horrible circumstances, were allowed by the Lord for Satan to use. The woman in Luke chapter 13, verse 16, the Bible says that, and our Lord said that Satan had had her bound for 18 years. We, we know that the demon-possessed man was allowed by, that, by the Lord in his sovereign mysterious purposes that we can't begin to discuss why we do know that the Lord allows Satan to do things at times. God is always in control. He always allows it or disallows it. Satan tried to disqualify Paul from his work. What he could not do from the wagging tongues and the Judaizers and people that came along behind him discredited, he thought he could do with a physical situation. Paul was too spiritual to allow people's uh, opinions of him to get him off track. Their praise or their, their uh, uh, criticisms of him. But perhaps Satan thought, I can nail him with this thorn. The Lord, though, while not removing Paul's thorn or his infirmity, gave him supernatural ability to work in spite of, alongside with, and through his infirmity. We should look past our problem, our infirmity, our burden, our illness, to the Lord who is over all, and ask him why he's permitted the affliction. Now, some people will say, now, Brother Lamb, I, I don't think we should ask the Lord why. I think we should always ask the Lord why. And if he does not tell us, that's his business. But sometimes he will let you know why. Now, we know in a blanket way that all things are for our good and for his glory. We know that all things are worked together for good, even though he may not tell us the specific reason. When a horrible circumstance comes, when a malady comes, when an affliction comes, I think we ought to examine our hearts to see if there's something there that the Lord is speaking to us about and to see if there's any unconfessed sin or willfulness on our part don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that when something like this comes, it is because of that. Paul's thorn was not because of something he had done wrong. But he goes before the Lord, doesn't he? Praying and asking for it to be removed. I will tell you that the Lord may not tell you why. But he did show Paul in verse 7 the answer. Why was Paul afflicted with this thorn? lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest I got too big for my britches. 
he had insight enough to realize that it was the Lord's doing, as Eli said. Remember what Eli said when they came and told him that when Samuel said, your sons are going to be taken in a disciplinary action by the Lord. Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. It is often God's design in allowing problems to humble us. In Paul's situation, it was not to discipline him. He had not done wrong. But to prevent him from being lifted up with pride. Do you realize that some of God's thorns, some of his burdens, some of his limitations on you are to keep you from something? I often share with you uh, about our dog that we had for so many years, Sinji. She was an African Basenji. If you know anything about the Basenji breed, they can climb trees, they can climb fences. They are hunting dogs. They're quite remarkable dogs who have a puppyhood for several years. Sinji lived to be 18 years old, and she adored my wife, tolerated me. She just she wreaked havoc in my life almost every day of my life. Finally, when we moved to the country out on the mountain there, she got somewhat tamed down. Since she was the type of dog, she'd go up and down the the neighborhood and bring other people's shoes and and tools and line them up on the driveway when we got home. They were were lined up perfectly there as if to say, see what I've done? I've earned my keep. And uh, you had no idea where they went, whose they were. My wife used to say, well, aren't you going to take them back? And I'd say, take them to who? Take them where? I don't know where that hammer came from. Since you could pick up things in her mouth, her bottom teeth were very nub from, from chewing through a chain-link fence. I never could convince Sinji that the fence was for her good or that the runner or whatever. So finally, as long as we lived in the city, we tried to keep her contained, but it was just, it was, we didn't have the electronic fences. I don't know if they even had them then, but uh, I don't think that that would have bothered Sinji. She was one of those stubborn dogs that would have gone through anything, but... She finally got where she'd stay on the property and uh, mind her, her, herself and, and be a, a good dog. But I never could convince Sinji that the reason I wanted her in that fence was because there were cars out there. There were people who would not appreciate her abilities to pick up things with her mouth and take them down the road. And if she could get shot, you know, she never could get that in her mind. And so many of God's people, they see God's fences as something to, to be hated and not to fight and to struggle against and they never enjoy their christian lives because of what they see with holdings and and cruel things that the lord has allowed in their lives god was not disciplining paul he was qualifying paul to serve him the thorn did not make paul bitter as yours It didn't make him quit. A lesser man would have just quit the ministry, gone to making tents, and got on with his life in that way. Three times. And I believe that these were three seasons of fasting and praying and wrangling before the Lord. Paul called Christ Lord, by the way. Stephen at his stoning in Acts 7 said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Notice what Paul asked for. He asked for the thorn to be removed. It's a simple prayer, isn't it? We can all relate to it. It doesn't take a degree in theology to find out what prayer ought to be like. Lord, remove this thorn. Paul asked, don't you think he asked in faith? Don't you think he used all the scriptural uh, recipes and prescriptions? Don't you think he would have fasted and prayed and whatever he could have thought of that would have gotten the Lord's attention. Verse 8 tells us that it might depart from me. I love to study the prayers of the Bible because they help me know how to pray. Before Paul ever learned why he had the thorn, he began to pray to have it removed, and so do we. We don't even stop to think, Lord, what deeper work are you doing in my life? What blessing is going to come about because of this? Just get it. I don't like it. I don't want it. It hurts. Remove it. Never Stopping to think, now, Lord, show me, if you will, why I have this. And if not, Lord, give me the grace to understand what to do here. Asking for pain and sickness to be removed from us is not sinful. Don't let me, I am not reproving any of us. We're about to go into prayer. We're going to ask the Lord to touch people's bodies. 
and to remove horrible circumstances. It is not wrong to pray that God will remove the thorn. God has built in each of us self-preservation and to recall against pain. It becomes sin for us. When does it become sin to, 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 to pray that way? It becomes sin when we get bitter at God for not doing what we ask Him to do. It's not wrong to bring all of our requests before the throne of grace. But it is wrong to get bitter at the Lord when He doesn't act on your timetable and your time frame or how you want Him to do it. God's grace is so amazing so super abounding that it enables us to live victoriously and beautifully in the Lord's will with a thorn, with an affliction. It would be easy to float back down to earth on a cloud and sashay around and tell people how beautiful heaven was. But to preach the gospel with an eye disease, with eye infection and running, smelly, horrible looking, if that's what it was, or whatever the situation was, now, that's hard, isn't it? That takes grace. This is not to ask, as some have erroneously taught, you should only ask the Lord something three times and then stop. Where do you get such things? The Bible instructs us to ask with importunity, doesn't it? Over and over and over again. Isaiah 62, verse 6. You need to record this verse. You'll need it one day. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. What a prayer promise. Isaiah 62, verse 6. And give him no rest. That's amazing. Give the Lord no rest till he establish, till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. What an encouragement to pray. In Luke 18, verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him? Though he bear long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. God waits to perfect us, to test our faith and patience. And that beautiful verse that we often refer to in Isaiah 30, verse 18. And therefore I, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for the Lord. We see the prayer that Paul prayed, but we also notice the answer that God gave him. Verse 9, He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God often answers prayer differently than we think he will. Romans 8.26 reminds us we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Our focus is on material, earthly things primarily. God's focus is on spiritual, inner, and eternal things. We want relief. We want ease from discomfort or inconvenience or luxury. But God wants us to learn patience. Again, Pink says, we must not be disheartened if our requests are not literally answered. Sometimes God answers by reconciling our minds to humiliating trials. My grace is sufficient for the sufficient to support under the severest and most protracted afflictions to enable the soul to lie submissively as clay in the hands of the potter to trust his wisdom and love to be assured that he knows what is best for us. This grace is ever new. It's always sufficient. It's never used up. It's like the daily supply of manna was exactly what they needed every day. As they rose each day, the grace was there. The, the manna was there. And so is the grace that God gives us. According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Let me ask you something. Will God's grace ever be exalted? Ten trillion years from the night we'll be singing was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious was that, did that grace appear the hour I first believed. When God gives us something, unlike some gifts we may give to each other, we've all gotten a gift on Christmas morning and the batteries weren't included. Or we needed something else to go with it. But when God gives a, gives a gift... 
He gives everything else needed to go along with it. We must ask for His grace. We see here that that must be asked for definitely and daily and diligently. Lord, this job is so hard, I'm going to have to have your grace today to face this boss, to do this piece of work, to live like this here in in this circumstance. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help when? In time of need. Psalm 138, verse 3, In the day when I cried, thou heardest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. A Puritan writer says, Souls that are rich in grace can bear burdens without a burden. A spiritual test we can measure our spiritual growth by is this, how how cheerfully do we endure pain? Acts 5, verse 40, when the apostles had been beaten, do you know what the Holy Spirit records? Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So Paul says here in verse 10, Therefore will I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. David said in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. When Paul says to be weak here in verse 9, my weakness, it means to empty oneself instead of being absorbed with ourselves and our pain. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Barbara Ryberg wrote, He does not lead me year by year, nor even day by day, but step by step my path unfolds. My Lord directs my way. Tomorrow's plans I do not know. I only know this minute But he will say, this is the way. By faith, now walk you in it. And I am glad that it is so. Today's enough to bear. And when tomorrow comes, his grace shall far exceed its care. What need to worry then or fret? The God who gave his son holds all my moments in his hands and gives them one by one. May the Lord bless his word and give us his grace.